On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Michelle Weber-Digon and Kiana Gardner. Michelle is the Research and Education Coordinator for Speech-Language Pathology at TIRR, T-I-R-R, Memorial Hermann, as well as a practicing clinician. She graduated with Communication Sciences and Disorders degrees from the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Houston. She became a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders in 2007. She's the ASHA CE Administrator for Memorial Hermann Health System and for the Academy of Spinal Cord Injury Professionals. She presents locally and nationally on topics related to medical speech-language pathology. She is currently an active member of ASHA, the Academy of Spinal Cord Injury Professionals, Dysphagia Research Society, Special Interest Division 11 on Supervision and Administration, Special Interest Division 13 on Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, and Special Interest Division 17 on Global Issues in Communication Sciences and Disorders. She's a recipient of 16 ACE Awards from ASHA. She is involved in streaming the electronic medical record, promoting evidence-based practice, development, teaching of clinical reasoning, and quality improvement. In addition, she's a mentor with the MedSLP Collective and enjoys fostering the growth of a new generation of clinicians. Kiana Gardner is an SLP at TIRR Memorial Hermann as well. She received her bachelor's in applied psychology and human relations from Pace University and her master's at the University of Houston in speech-language pathology. Kiana has primarily practiced in inpatient rehab with a focus on patients with acquired brain injury, stroke, and other neurological conditions. She's passionate about the field and is an ASHA STEP mentor, and she enjoys supervising and training the new generation of SLPs. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being here, you guys. I will I'll let you introduce yourself first, Michelle, and then, yeah. Okay. So I am Michelle Degon, and I am a practicing speech pathologist in Houston, Texas, and I spend part of my day in clinical care and part of my day in clinical education. And I've been doing this for a really long time. And I'm pretty active in a lot of areas related to medical speech pathology and dysphagia. Awesome. I'm Fiona Gardner, also practicing in Houston, Texas. Um, I am currently treating most of brain injury disorders of consciousness and sometimes pediatrics. Um, but I am you know, originally from New York and moved down here specifically to get my schooling and work with an inpatient rehab. Awesome. All right. Well, nice to meet you, Kian. Never met you before. So, so nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? So today we are going to talk about um, the reason we named it digesting diversity in the case of dysphagia is because there's a 
there's the management of dysphagia that we generally do in our clinical practice, but that we felt together that there was this element where we weren't taking the whole patient and their history um, into account. And that affects lots of different things. It, it affects how you evaluate them. It affects how you treat them. It affects your clinical recommendations. And and it, and it also impacts that what matters most to them may not be what matters most to us as clinicians, and we need to honor that. So that's kind of how we came to this. I love that. I love that. Thank you, Michelle. If you um, look at the demographic makeup of the United States, there's about 200, and, you know, there's 332 million people who come to us from a variety of ethnic groups, cultures, regions, and races. And the thing we know about dysphagia is that, you know, it's a health problem. And we're trying to tackle all kinds of aspects of it from the malnutrition to the dehydration to the aspiration pneumonia. And we do that by modifying a lot of things about um, patients' diets. And they may or may not truly understand what we're modifying and why we're modifying it. And what we know about culture for people is that culture can be defined as all the ways of life, uh, including arts, beliefs, and institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation. And we all live in like this global culture, but we also have these subcultures and there are a lot of variations about how people define their culture. Like you might be a member of a culture, but you think very differently than other members of your culture. So we shouldn't grossly stereotype or move people into, into one bucket just because we know some facts about them because people are a melting pot and in America is definitely a very big melting pot. And a lot of what we talked about was what we know about nutrition as well. Um, so there's different variations in what people have an idea of what nutrition can be and what hydration can be and what that looks like. One thing that Michelle told me when we first started working on this project is hydration. We think about it as water or whatever it might be that we enjoy. But if I drink cold water, the next person might drink tea as every drink that they have throughout the day. And maybe they don't like cold items because that's part of their culture. Um, and that's something that has stuck with me since then. Um, but we need to think about people's dietary preferences and cultural preferences. Do they have different allergies? Even when we're just thinking about the initial bedside swallowing evaluation, are we giving the items that people might even eat in the culture? Are they allergic to anything in there? What is the sugar content? Are they lactose intolerant? Some of those things I think are, we think are skipped. When we're making those decisions. And so who do we need to consider when we're discussing adequate means of nutrition hydration? So we really need to talk to the patient. And if the patient is nonverbal or can't share those things with us, we need to reach out to their caregivers. And we also, and we'll talk about this a little bit deeper um, later on, uh, we need to talk about like access to food. So like we might make recommendations about certain kinds of diets. There are is there access for those foods? Like if I say a patient needs to discharge on a period diet, but you need meals on wheels, does meals on wheels even make that diet period? Are we even thinking in those terms about uh, the things we're recommending? If we're, if we're recommending Simply Thick, for instance, as a thickener, do, do the families have the ability to purchase all these thickening products? Or are there alternative ways and alternative recipes that meet the needs of our patients that don't require additional um, items to be added to the food. So those are those are things to think about. Yeah, I, I love this. I had a woman on the podcast maybe about a month ago, and, and that was what she was saying was that so many of the, even like commercial thickeners had things in them that weren't 
kosher or they also her mother had an allergy to them. So she ended up reformulating so many things too. And I think that's just, I, I don't think we as speech pathologists do a great job of considering those things when we just give things to our patients or tell our patients, hey, try this, or or this is what, you know, this is going to help you when we really truly don't know that if they have all these other conditions that we're not considering also. Yeah, I was speaking um, last month with a group of dietitians in, in Denver, and we did a presentation on how you could you could completely meet someone's nutrition and calorie needs but with two food items from the Indian diet. So we were looking at the at the Indian culture and it was amazing how you could take something that was regular and then change it to minced and moist and then pureed. And then you could even get it down to a three without adding any thickeners to it. You just had to add hot water. And then for the drink, all you had to do to change the thickness of it was add either more yogurt or more milk. And you just do a nutrient analysis on it. And you didn't have to add all these other things. In. And it's just one simple food that was very culturally accepted by um, a large portion of people in that group. And we often sometimes don't think about access to even the grocery stores. Um, a lot of people might live in food deserts where they don't have access to affordable foods or adequate nutrition, whereas like we might live really close to the next grocery store and be making these recommendations for what they can go by, but we don't know too much about their finances. When we're first going in, we're assessing something different. And I think in our setting, we have the privilege of being able to give them maybe a box of mildly baked or moderately baked, but we don't know that all settings have that privilege. So when making those recommendations and telling people what they can do and what they can buy and what they might have access to, um, trying to provide other resources for them. Yep. And some some other things we've noticed just working in in um, in a large healthcare organization is that you know there's always the the umbrella of the main culture of healthcare and what I would like to call like regionally typical diets or you know pretty much everyone in America seems to serve eggs at breakfast and you know there's just certain standard items that appear frequently and some hospital systems rotate their menu uh, once every seven days. We are lucky enough that ours is rotated every four weeks, which is not typical, um, but we also have people who stay there for a lot longer. So just thinking about is, I mean, do we even think about things being palatable? Do, I mean, I've had a patient once who was hospitalized for eight months and got eggs every day and they were like, if I see another egg for the rest of my life. I know. I know. <laughs> done, yeah. done with the eggs. Yeah. And I, and I know that we ask people all their food preferences when they're hospitalized, but, and, and we're, we're well-meaning when we prepare food trays, but I just, I find that, okay, we have people that go around our hospital asking patients like from a menu, what they would like. And there's like a standard menu of the day, but they would just, they just want to get through that menu quickly with our patients. And yet I know personally that there's lots of off-label food ordering available, but that patient doesn't know it. So that, that kind of also impacts like how much is someone going to eat? Are they going to eat enough protein? Are they going to get their nutritional needs met? Are they just going to push away from it and just say, I'm, I'm done? Yeah. So what we did, we got real excited about these questions and we uh, sent out a large survey to, I posted it on LinkedIn and Division 13 and Division 17 with ASHA and all the people we work with. We just sent it everywhere we could and 
we just were trying to gather some information about speech pathologists at large. And we primarily focused on we had 184 people respond to our survey. We felt pretty happy. Yeah. <laughs> we only had to remove one person's data for non-meaningfulness. We didn't really know. Like it was like maybe they started the survey and then decided maybe they didn't want to finish it. But we asked people about um, their religion. How would they um and we asked them to classify it. So what we did was we didn't we didn't do pre-select buttons. You know how we do do most surveys, they're like tell us, you know, out of these choices. No, no, we didn't do that. We left it completely open-ended, which made it really fun to categorize it later on. But we wanted you to tell us, how did you classify your race? How did you classify your religion? What ethnic groups did you think you identified with? And how old were you? How many years had you been practicing as a speech pathologist? How did you um, identify your gender? And then whether or not you actually provided dysphagia therapy, and then have you ever um, modified a diet taking into account race, religion, cultural preferences, or nutritional preferences. So it was kind of just trying to get an overview of what people have done. And uh, not really surprising, 75% of our participants were Caucasian, about 3% were biracial or mixed, oh, 9% were Black. A two percent didn't answer the question. Okay, and five percent were Hispanic and or Latino, and six percent were Asian. So we kind of got um, just a general representation of those hundred and eighty-four people, and then we went into like religious classification. Uh, we we covered quite a few religions in this one hundred and eighty-four people, which was uh, we tried to group. We ended up having to group them to make um, our data kind of look like something we could interpret. Yeah. Uh, Catholicism was separate from from Christian, but for the Protestant religions, we grouped them all together. That was by far the largest group of that demographic. But we had quite a few people that were none or spiritual, Mormon, Islamic, Judaism, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic. We even had one deconstructed Catholic, which threw me for a minute, and I had to go researching what a deconstructed Catholic was because what that was. And then uh, we wanted to know about their ethnic groups. And um, I thought it was interesting that a lot of people categorize their ethnic group as Caucasian. Because to me, I wouldn't say Caucasian is an ethnic group. I would, I don't know, would have been like the influence of maybe my grandparents and my great-grandparents or the community in which I live. I could, I don't know. A lot of people put none for that. They didn't view themselves as belonging to an ethnic group. But we got some very interesting representation from Mexican-American, Indian-Asian, Jewish, Hispanic, Filipino. Some people put European in general. We grouped all the Europeans together. Pacific Islander, Vietnamese-American, Arab-Latina. Like We had this very interesting, nice mix. And then we went in and we looked at the ages, which I thought was interesting. We had quite a few retired people reply to our survey. <laughs> so they aren't even practicing speech pathologists anymore. But it was so funny. I, I think I did two surveys this year I was involved in, and there were so many retired SLPs that replied and they're like, I'm taking the survey, but I'm still not working, but I'm so interested in, in the work you're doing. But like, please consider my response. And I'm like, oh my God, I love this. But like, I also wish so many other practicing SLPs <laughs> could reply too. Survey <laughs> for you? Yes. <laughs> You know, they say that, I know you're doing, um, you're, you're in school right now, that there's this bias that some of us are more likely to answer surveys. Like, if you give me a survey, I will answer it. I probably answered more PhD surveys in this country than, than most people even bat their eyes at. But I also know that for every person that's like me, there's someone who's like, 
not interested. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the ADD version that I start every survey and I'm, I have every intention of going back and finishing it and I never do. So I am, I am that person that leaves the data undone. Yes. That's all good. Me. <laughs> yeah. It's open, but I didn't think so. We had a variety of years practicing. So I mean, it was pretty interesting. The about 40 of those people were less than five years, but you know, we had 42 people respond in the six to 10 years. And we had we had 41 people with 26 or more years of experience. So that that's a huge number to be taken our survey. I like that. And the majority of respondents said that they did modify a respondent's diet if, you know, based taking into aspects of their identity. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people said that they took in their general nutritional preferences and their religion, but they also said that was the most challenging to try to accommodate. So a lot of the times when we're thinking about having access to families, some people do have their family's presence, but like other people do not. And so if you're thinking about recommending having the family bring something in for them to try, or we can modify it to their diet. Do they have access to their family to be able to do that? Or does their kitchen have the access to be able to do that? But allowing family drinkings in was also something that people mentioned they like to do. Um, substituting ice chips with small sips of hot water and oozing torches, like Michelle was talking about before. And then translating the prescribed diet into the language of the client to promote some appearance to the diet. A lot of people had just lots of variability in their comments. And then in certain settings, they reported that the RDs held more power in implementing total preferences that SLPs could not, and that SLPs could only modify the textures. Which is interesting, you hadn't heard of that, or at least I hadn't heard of that before. A lot of people shared the impact of fasting during Ramadan when engaging in dissuasion therapy. So just taking into account that people have cultural rituals and allowing them the time to engage in them instead of just thinking about us needing to target dysphagia therapy. We can pause, we can remember that this is a person and that they have a culture that they abide by and we need to respect that even though we do have therapeutic goals. Um, one therapist did mention picking for the patient to help make their preferences. We do have access and sometimes co-treat with OT, and speech so that we can sequence through and make different meals for people or just have them make meals themselves. And I think that has been a benefit um, every single setting. Then we also talked about, or people mentioned the amount of meals per day. So we might eat two or three meals per day, but some people snack a little bit every day. And if we're just bringing these trays at specific times and that's not even the time that they eat at home, how are we encouraging adequate nutrition also, just mealtime setup and cleanup routines is sometimes a part of cultural preferences and thinking about the role of SLP in educating on the impact of food preferences on medical outcomes. And, and I just like to say, you have to also deal with team barriers. By that, I mean, like, I had a patient once who got to the point where he could be on a regular diet, and the thing he wanted most was some sushi. And I was like, oh, I can get you sushi. No problem. Do you know how much pushback I got from the team? Oh my God, you're going to give him raw fish? I mean, he's, he's hospitalized. And I'm like, well, he's not immunocompromised. He eats it regularly outside of the hospital. What, why is that a problem inside the hospital? 
they were just, they were terrified of my recommendation. I had to agree to get him the cooked version of sushi in order for this to move forward. And I was like, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, um, it's kind of like when you're pregnant and they tell you not to eat sushi too. And I'm like, no, there's a whole country, Japan. They eat sushi. They give birth to children. <laughs> I don't understand why we're so concerned about these things. Yeah, yeah. Then you can do more monitoring in the hospital setting than outside of it. <laughs> so you- I mean, at least we're checking on things here, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's just, it's, it's interesting that it's almost like we're so fear-based instead of like cultural-based. Like so many things that we do revolve around fear of things instead of the cultural preferences and, and things like that. And I, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and it's just, it's, it's, I just don't know how we got to this point. You know, it's like, how did we get to every, everything is risk averse. Everything is, you know, even though this is the patient's preferences, even though this is their cultural preference, the fear almost trumps that. We've gotten, we've gotten really into safety and, and it's, it, it does, you know, the pendulum has swung both ways. We realize that through time and yeah. hopefully we'll bring it a bit back to the middle because you have to balance safety and um, and just the joy of food and nourishment can be um, helpful for the soul just in feeling good. I mean, when you're sick and you have a cold, you want that whatever you want. For me, it's chicken noodle soup or some good pho. One of them, I want either. And um, that just makes me feel warm and cozy and cared for. And and then we tell people they can't have the thing that makes them feel warm and cozy and cared for. Okay. I'd be so curious now. It's just, I'm so curious about like the psychological, even like placebo effect, you know, of, of just telling someone, no, you cannot have this, you know, even knowing you could have something would probably just do so much more, have just more, so much more buy-in and, and psychological impacts than my wheels are turning now. Okay, carry on. It's good to have wheels open. So one of the things a lot of healthcare systems in this country have, have gone to is this person-centered approach, which we're going to talk a little bit about. One thing that we highlighted was cultural humility. So the commitment to evaluating yourself and self-critiquing your thoughts, what you know, what you've learned as you've grown up. And even in grad school, we learn a lot of textbook things. And that's how we get into the world, but then our patients teach us more about just the flexibility of people's deficits and what they can experience in different cultures as well. And just having a willingness to learn about another person's culture and spending the time to do that and how that can impact your treatment plan going forward. And just taking a moment and thinking about what your own beliefs are and your own cultural identity and what you might think as quote unquote normal and how that can differentiate between someone else's experience and how they've grown up. And then it's something in acknowledging some of those differences that we do have. So we came up with this, <laughs> it's called E2R2A2. So the two E's, the first E stands for educate. So learning about the different types of privilege that you might have, whether it's racial, gender, um, socioeconomic, or able-bodied privilege, and just having discussions with different people in your departments, different people in, in your communities, reading books and articles, whether that's patients or people that you work with, to just gain education. And then engaging, I kind of jumped into that. So engaging with the patient and the family and your colleagues in an open-minded manner, 
um, about their dietary and religious or cultural food preferences. Um, and thinking about the types of questions that you're asking during that initial evaluation or the bedside swallow evaluation and that how that can impact you going forward or also just what you're trying on your objective swallow studies. The first R is reflect. So reflecting on your own background, your experiences, your social position, what you have access to, um, and how you might have more advantages or privileges that others might not have. So I think we talked about food deserts. And then are there things that you as an SLP or things that the patient might want you as their SLP to know about your preferences is one of those things that you could ask the patient going into the treatment session. Um, the second R is for recognizing. So recognizing that there are systemic structures and power dynamics that also contribute to privilege and how that can impact your overall clinical decision making. Um, and privilege is not just about someone's individual actions, but it's also just generally rooted in social, economic, and political systems. So what we're considering normal and how that's impacting how we make those future decisions. And then A is for acknowledge. So examining your own biases, your prejudices, and how that can influence your perceptions and interactions with others, and being open to feedback, increasing your awareness of yourself. And the last A is for action. So having those conversations with your team members, talking to the family, talking to the patient, talking to the doctors, registered dietitians, anyone that can help support the patient outcomes and also just promoting health objectives. And I'd like to just throw out there that doing all this research for this um, topic, we I, I took several of the Harvard Harvard implicit bias tests, and my 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 brain was. I just think everybody should take some of those. I mean, you don't have to take all of them, but you yeah. should take some of them. And the things you think, some of the things ended up being true about myself. Like I was like, oh, I'm that's not a problem for me. And that, that was not a problem for me. But then other things I thought um, shouldn't have been something that I would be prone to looking at through a certain lens. It showed that I was. And yeah. so we all make assumptions. Like a good example is like around the holidays, you know, does, does every patient want a turkey at Thanksgiving? Well, if you didn't grow up in a country that has Thanksgiving, no. Yeah. But if you're you know, you, you have to learn about your patients to learn what holidays are meaningful for them and what foods might like talk to them during those times, you know? Yeah. I think I, I love this model, you guys. And, and for those of you listening, this will be in the show notes because this is a really good graphic that they just described. But I, I literally just had an experience yesterday. My son was taken to the ER because he swallowed a gigantic bead ball thing. I can't say enough good things about his school staff, the hospital staff, the whole experience for lack of a better word was wonderful. <laughs> and everyone was so kind and caring and compassionate, except one thing. And they, you know, said we were ready to leave. We, you know, got the beat out. Everything was all good. And then this woman, I don't know who she was. I don't know what she was. I don't know if she was a nurse. I don't know if she was an SLP. I don't know what she was. She literally walked in the room threw down a cup of water and some graham crackers and said, he can't leave until he eats this and walked away. And I just was like, okay, well, my son can't drink thin water and my son can't eat graham crackers. So cool. 
so I like went out to the nurse's station. I was like, you guys, I don't know who just came in and, and, and the one girl cut me off and she's like, yeah, he can't, as long as he can eat that, then you guys can go. And I was like, no, but I'm telling you, he can't eat that. And she's like, well, why is something going on? I'm like, no, my son has special needs. He has swallowing issues. He cannot chew this. Uh, and I just like started like, I'm like, how far do I go with, you know, explaining this? And I'm like, is there something else we can try to satisfy this requirement? And I was like, do you have an applesauce I can show you? I'm like, if you give me a straw, he can drink through a straw. And she's like, oh yeah, well, you should have just said that. And I was like, I, the woman didn't give me a chance. She literally came in, threw it on the table and left. And I don't know who she was. <laughs> and it just, it, it, was, it was such a like, to me, it was just such a glaring, I, I don't know, misfire. Like as if she, if she had just come in and said, hi, I'm so-and-so, we just need to make sure he can eat and swallow. Would this be something that's okay or acceptable? Like she clearly could tell that my son had special needs. I don't, I don't know. There was just so many things that were wrong with that one thing. And it, it just, it, it reminded me of this whole conversation and, and how sometimes we just are really quick to assume things. Yeah. <laughs> could have giving you and her the information that she needed, or at least explaining who she was, just going in without introducing herself and making that assumption. Yeah. You give really good perspective because you're you're there on the other end. And so I think that keeps it real. And I just wish other people, I, I feel like a lot of speech pathologists graduate school and we're young and we're eager and we want to help people in school Right. But we're seeing it through our lens and we think that by being, that our need to be helpful, we assume our help is A, wanted, and B, the correct help. Because we have lived in this, like, probably this very sheltered model of what we assume, like, is this pathway of what it should look like. And that that pathway is not the same for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I think you get that with age and experience to some extent. I'm not saying you can't force it a little earlier, but you have to want to look. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I will say I did I did fire an SLP for my son, I don't know, a few years ago because she just wouldn't, she kept saying, well, you know, we need to do this. He needs to do this. And I was like, that's not important to us. Well, he needs to eat this. He needs to eat that. And I was like, that's not, I don't know, it's not something we've ever eaten or really done and, and it was like, after like almost like a, a month or two months, I'm like, this is just a waste of time because I'm, this isn't, we're not going anywhere with this therapy, like that it's not going to be functional for us. And so I called the agency and just said, I'm really sorry, but like, this is just not a good match. And they're like, she's a phenomenal therapist. And I was like, I'm not saying she's not, but like, she's not listening to what my family needs. Therefore it's not, it's, I don't want to say it's a waste of time, but it really sort of is because what she's trying to get my son to do is not something that matters to our family. And it was like the the person that, you know at the agency was like, well, we've never had a complaint about her. And I was like, I'm not complaining about, like, I'm sure she's a wonderful SLP, but I just right now want it to be a good match in what is important to us as a family and what's going to be functional for him. And yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, and then um, we, we, we go on to talk a little bit about how like, some things to keep in mind is that, you know, we often prescribe these texture modified foods for our patients as part of their treatment plan for dysphagia. And, you know, a lot of research has shown that when you modify the texture of a diet, especially for somebody who was eating a regular diet before they were hospitalized, that there's poor intake, not going to want to eat something that just texture does affect palatability. Um, it also impacts the micronutrients. It usually doesn't meet the same nutritional standards. And 
pureed foods have lower nutrient density because they're generally higher in water in order to make them pureed. And that takes out valuable nutrients. And then we often skip giving these patients snacks or we just assume that the snack they want is like cottage cheese and applesauce or something. Might not be what they want at all as their like snack options. There, 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 there is some studies that show that, you know, we get better intake with some molds, but even with the molds, sometimes we have patients who are just like, I'm just not going to eat any of that. And so then we started thinking about patients that we've, we've worked with. One of our examples, we named Mr. Johnson, uh, and they admitted MPO with an acute right MCO, and then they have a prior history of CVAs and some cognitive deficits. And during the mission of cross, his initial lymphish stay, there was no family member, so there was no family training. And then once we called the family, they told us that they would not complete any diet modifications for his nutritional needs, and they also have low SES. So we completed an MDS, um, and the recommendations were purely texture solids and moderate big liquids. And Mr. Jackson is planning to dish back home in 12 days. So we came up with some critical thinking questions. So what do we know about the patient? Do they even understand their deficits because we're talking about a newborn injury and are they motivate, motivated to address them? Because a lot of the times we're seeing that the patient is MPL, but sometimes they're able to tell us, hey, I actually don't have a goal of eating. I want to focus on walking and talking. How do we then support that? Then figuring out the support of family caregivers with the instrumental showing, um, we thinking outside of the box, potentially improve patient outcomes and what foods and liquids are important to them. So our solutions were MBTP and then advancing the diet as slowly as or as quickly as possible for a safe discharge home with limited family burden because they already told us it's going to be hard for them to make those modifications. If NMES is appropriate, then we'll do that. We'll work with social work to explore different food pantry options and then hope for a safe home family discharge. And in that case, that um, ended up working out for that that patient. I'm I'm a big fan of the McNeil dysphagia therapy program. I've seen it make incredible um, changes in patients' lives in a relatively quick manner in the patients that it's appropriate for. So uh, in this case, it, it worked out. So I think these are sort of topics that come up all the time, like amongst SLPs, like sort of controversial topics. And, you know, I love that you guys came up with a plan. I love that you worked with, you know, dietary and social work to, to come up with a plan. How far do you guys, you know, you, you thought about these critical thinking questions. How far do you go with them as opposed to passing them off to the dietitian or social work? And I think so many times we've heard other SLPs say, that's not our role. That's not our job. That's, you know, getting into other people's territories and I think I disagree with that because I think we need a baseline to start from. Like we need to know this stuff because it does greatly impact our treatment plan. Like we may not be the one that, like you said, you, you brought in social work to help get the adequate meals planned. We may not be the one involved in that planning portion, but we need to know the information in order to figure out our course of treatment. I think that most of us, we try to involve whoever we can from the same, from the first part that we're, I mean, 
from the get-go there we go <laughs> we involve rd and a lot of the different team members that we have access to from the get-go um rd we're able to email them send them messages and say hey this is what we're going to try to do this is what we saw in the fees or the nds can we try maybe pulling back on the two of the two feeds and see if that helps with appetite uh, do you mind coming and co-seating for a session so we can just talk about the different options that they might have? And they're very open and um, available to co-seat with and collaborate with oftentimes. Um, I think that we're, we try to push. We push it. We, we push the limits. We push yeah. it here. We push it here. So yeah. in that particular case, well, the wife did not want to learn two feedings. And refused to modify any of the food she prepared at home. Absolutely refused. So we were kind of like, and then you told me the length of stay was 12 days. And I was like, I got 12 days to get this done. What can I do in 12 days? And it, it like they say, it takes a village. So if we can phone all the friends and get everybody on the same page and, you know, even in that case, we ended up scheduling like Saturday and Sunday therapy. Like we we made it, you got lots of therapy because we only had 12 days to try and speed that through. So yeah, I think it really takes working with the, with as many team members as you can, as you can work with. And I realized that we kind of work in a little bit of a utopia over here because we have a lot of different people on staff that we can lean on. And a lot of people are kind of islands in the, in the places in which they work. But, you know, in this case, if I if we hadn't gotten him to this point and he went home with the tube feeding, we probably would have had to have the adult protective services. Yeah. She wasn't going to feed him. If she yeah. wasn't going to modify food, like, then, then as a therapist, I'm put in a really challenging position of he can't safely eat anything. She won't prep anything. He's going to starve, like, literally. So then, so then, then you're going into my other ethics of, like, I can't just let that happen. You know, I just don't, this is the right pathway. So I get what you're saying that some people think there's a blurred line, but like, I just want, if people could just step back and do this, what if that were your, yeah. what yeah. if that was your best friend? Yeah. Would that be acceptable to you to let that play out like that? Because it would be acceptable to me. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. I think it, it was funny. I was doing some work at a hospital here and one of the patients, same thing. He lived out, he lived on a boat. And he, and the, the GI was concerned. He's like, I cannot discharge this patient on a G tube to a boat because he has no way to like clean this in a sanitary environment. And so it was, it, it was quite the challenge, you know, to get everybody on board. Like, what can we do to not have this guy go with, with the G tube? So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So, yeah. Th thank you for saying that, Michelle. I think you know, so many times, you know, what is that saying? It's like, you know, be who you were or be who you wish you had when you were younger. But I also like to reframe it like be who you wish. What is it like? Be who you wish you needed when you're older. Like when you're older, you need people to take care of you. People are going to have to take care of you and be that person that you wish was going to take care of you. It all goes back to a little bit of empathy. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, you have to. You can't get so into the I'm trying to meet productivity and get this done that you forget that these are future humans and um, compassion is all for. Yep. And our other our other patient that we we talk about, uh, Mr. Wynn, was admitted following a workplace injury and he had an ACDF procedure and his primary language was Vietnamese. And 
he had very good family support. They were present. He was tolerating a minced and moist texture, solid and thin liquids with volume regulation via the Proveil cup. And he would aspirate or penetrate with larger volumes. And he was, he was a high level quadriplegic. So mobility was a concern. So the patient didn't enjoy any of our food. They just didn't like the standard food that we made. And family was at the bedside um, emphasizing the regional differences in his food preferences. And um, we happened to be in a pilot stage of testing some various cultural modifications and adherence to ITSU guidelines. So there, there weren't a lot of options available. And for those of you not familiar with the Vietnamese diet, there's a lot of broths, stews, sandwiches, and mixed consistencies, there's the mixed consistencies. And so that was really challenging for this patient. So we had to think about, do they understand their deficits and were they motivated to address them? And what, what could the family do to support kind of a balance? And what did the swallow study show? And again, you know, we're thinking outside the box and, and whatnot. So then the solutions we came up with was adapting the ITSI MM5 to accommodate the Vietnamese cuisine and exploring some different beverage options like fresh coconut water, some herbal tea, some lime soda, things that were um, important to that patient. We looked at liberalizing and allowing for mixed consistencies, even though that's not technically allowed on an ITSI MM5, we're not supposed to mix yet, but we said to ourselves, could we separate the soups and, and kind of put the broth on the side and let them go back and forth? Could we do a diced stir fry that was cooked really well? Could we offer flaked steamed fish that was extremely moist? And could we trial some native foods on a fees exam? So take it a step back and like try to bring in some more natural foods in an exam that would allow us to look at that a little, a little bit of a more complete picture. So yeah, that that worked. I love that. And I, I love using fees for that reason. Like there's just so many, so many ways we can just be so much more flexible with things that we're offering on fees. And yeah. Agree. Agree. Oftentimes when a patient has already had an MBS and they hear the word barrier, they are immediately like, oh, that's that stuff, that white stuff, it feels so gross. And a fees just allows you to be able to try different things that they might not have that negative association with it. And even just maybe bringing in things from their culture if they're able to do that before the fees and plan that out with the families. I think that's to your report, having that person centered approach. What can I give you that will make you feel better that we can actively see if it's safe for to have? And can we work towards that? Yep. So some barriers that we have found to just adequate nutrition is limited kitchen options depending on your setting. Um, reduce access to interpreters. So if we are speaking to people that have all these different languages, but we don't have access to interpreters, how are we ensuring that we're getting the information that we need and that we're able to hear what their goals are and what they want us to work on? Access to healthcare and resources post-discharge. So are they discharging to the home setting? Are they going to outpatient? It just varies person to person. And we need to try to, in the best way that we can, accommodate and provide them with the resources that we can have. And limited opportunities for order modifications. Sometimes there is a barrier there because they can't have, or at that time, they're unable to have that safely. 
And I think that really does mess with reportability uh, when you're telling someone they quote unquote can't have something that they really do want. A lot of the menus are not reflecting the cultural variations or preferences that are widely available, but maybe just not within the setting. A lot of the modified foods, even if they are culturally appropriate, they're less nutritionally dense, which Michelle talked about. And then when talking to some of these uh, companies that different settings work with, are some of these large-scale recipes available? Not often. So then they come in limited numbers or just certain amounts that are more popularly ordered, but that doesn't account for the one person that really does want this one thing. And then one thing that Michelle uh, mentioned to me when we first started working on this project was fair and spirits of healing rituals that may be valued a little bit more than this stage of contributory and rehab strategies. So we've heard a lot about healing sickness by using different herbs and using different medicines that might not be of the typical subscription or like onions with a sock on will help pull infection. I've heard that from different people as a healing property, but are we considering those different aspects while we're also trying to target different therapies from our standpoints? And just being aware of the fact that these exist. Yeah, when you try to scale some of those itsy recipes at some of those levels to be like prepared in a kitchen, it's not like making a, a pot of stew or something. Like it just, they don't, the, when you when you scale to volume, like something gets lost in the texture and the, what people want to like. And then, so so one so one of the things we've done here is, you know, we've created some task forces. We've worked closely with our frontline kitchen staff, our dietitians, and we've gotten people who are different from different ethnic groups. And then we create these little food parties, you know, where we bring some foods and we we had like an Arabic food party, and then we invited people to the table from many different Arab countries. And then we would be like, mm, there's not enough lemon in that. Nope, there's not enough to do. Like we would be like, so we we were like, you need to tweak the recipe to have a little of this and that. So we gave the kitchen feedback and it was funny. Their response was, well, but we, but we followed the recipe. I'm like, well, then your recipe is fucked. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not how that food tastes. <laughs> and we did the same thing for India. And so we're, we're slowly going through several of the, um, I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but you know, we're in Houston and we have the most number of ethnic groups in the entire world. That we're gonna say. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Crazy. So you could run into literally someone from anywhere and they would eat their food and we have to figure out like what that might look like. And there are some groups that are, you know, proportionally we have more of, so it's easier to cater to those groups that some of the, the smaller groups can be a little challenging. And then sometimes you have to partner with your large food nutrition corporations. Like we currently work with Morrison. Um, and there are, these, these places have their own chefs, they have their own recipe builders, they have their own like banks of recipes and they can, they can tell you that, okay, on the West coast, they're going to want this. And on the East coast, you know, they're going to want this, but, but, but they have a recipe bank that covers like all of those uh, regions and they just kind of, you can select the ones that go for your, your area. And, you know, it's just really important to realize that um, culturally, People are at a lot of different points when they're hospitalized. And, you know, one thing I like to remember is that in different religions, like, you know, you might fast and some patient might be really sad that they can't fast during that time of the year because they're hospitalized and, 
and they're they're allowed to, to to break the fast because of medical reasons, but that doesn't take away the fact that they feel bad. Yeah. They get to honor their mm-hmm. culture or their religion or what should be happening. And their whole family gets to do it, but they don't get to do it. It just makes them feel bad. Yeah. Well, and that and that's what I was going back to. I think the psychological effect of all of this is so it has just such a huge impact on things. You know, just knowing that the people caring for you really truly care about you and care about your culture and your values and that that I mean that just says something you know that that just you you want to buy into what they're saying if you know that they genuinely care about you as a person that's you know the other thing that we talked to you know talk about is that you know it's really important for speech pathologists to to do ethnographic interviewing and I don't think that a lot of us I didn't know about it no, I want to like go change like all of <laughs> like all of our intake forms. I want to change like all of our yeah. Completely. We come in with our intake forms and we just we look at the order. What diet are they on when they come in? That's what we need to assess. But are we asking any other questions other than typical goals or the deficits that they're noticing since whatever injury they're coming in with? But a lot of the times we're not. I don't want to say that no one is because there's certainly some SLPs out there that have been thinking about these sorts of things. And that's what we want to encourage and we want to keep on doing as we go forward. So we came up with some questions and we subgroup them. So under language and ethnic history, we put tell us a little bit about yourself, where were you born and raised, what is your country of origin? What ethnic or cultural group do you identify with? How long have you lived in the country? What language is most spoken in your home? And then what language do you prefer to speak? Because all that information is important. A lot of people, maybe they do speak English, but they do want the interpreter there because that might aid in any communicative breakdowns and also the cultural group or ethnic group that they might identify with you can have an assumption about what that means for them, what they might eat, but they might not prescribe to every part of that culture and asking those questions, those questions gives you that information. What is important to you out of those versus what is not, or is it all important? And then under our next subgroup of cultural values, beliefs, use of illness or dysphagia, we started off with, I want to work with you uh, to be sure that you're getting the best care possible. And then I'm meeting all of your needs. So is there anything that I should know about your customs or your practices that are important to including your care? And that's very broad. So they could really tell you anything that they think is important to them, which then guides the rest of your therapy. Um, and then tell me about the foods that you normally eat at no time. And then are there foods that you don't eat ever at certain times? Tell me about those. Because a lot of people come in and they say, I don't eat different meats only on Fridays or every other Friday. Everyone has their own things that they prescribe to and it's important to know that because we can add those to the order. And then how many meals do you normally eat? At what times do you eating with? Uh, how many of your daily social activities involve foods when you're eating out and you're visiting others? And then share with me what you believe positive from your dysphagia. Because a lot of people, maybe it's the first time that they're hearing the word dysphagia, Maybe they don't know the correlation between their illness and dysphagia at all. And we can provide some insight into that versus going in and telling them what they can and cannot have or what might not be safe for them to have. What do you call the illness slash dysphagia that you are here for? Because everyone's not calling it 
swallowing issues or dysphagia. They're calling it something else, and that's important to know. Um, have you had this illness or dysphagia before? When did it start? How has it made you feel? Um, and that goes into that psychological, psychosocial sort of aspect of things. Like what are the feelings that you have had in relation to dysphagia? And then a lot of the times I've heard of different experiences that people have had prior with an SLP and it wasn't the greatest of experiences. So they're already coming in thinking, hey, this lady's gonna come in with graham crackers and water on the table and say, hey, have this or you can't leave the hospital. And that's, <laughs> we don't want that experience for you, for anybody. We wanna be working together collectively, collaboratively. And then it can be frightening to be in a hospital. Are you feeling about having to be in the hospital? What fears do you have about this phase and then lastly, we're interested in honoring your values and your beliefs. Is there anything that you want us to know to help you regain gain or maintain your health? Awesome. This was awesome, you guys. This was so you know, jam-packed with information. If you know, those of you listening, please download the show notes because there's so many helpful resources in this and just ways to implement this. And and yeah, this was awesome, you guys. Thank you so much for putting this together and for all the incredible resources you shared too. Thank you for letting us share. Yeah, that's fun. Any final thoughts? Just be open. That's our final thought. Please be open to, um, you know, don't get so bogged down in your daily life that you can't listen to the people in front of you. Yeah. We have so much to do as SLP. We often have a large workload, but within an extra five minutes, talking to a patient, researching something, do for the plan of care and for the bills going forward. So yes, we're busy, but take the time because it's helpful. Awesome. Thank you so much, you guys. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week.